thank you, Jen, for reading that so helpfully. I'm just going to do a bit of rearranging. I wonder what you would say if you were asked this question. Uh, What would you say are some of the big events in history that have changed and shaped the world? What are the things in human history that have impacted the world so, so that the world and humanity will never be the same again? What would you say? Would you say the rise of the uh, Greek Empire or the British Empire or some other empire? Would, would you say the Enlightenment or the Industrial Revolution? Would you say one of the world wars of the last century? Uh, would you say acts of terrorism like 9-11 that definitely shaped our airports, hasn't it? Uh, the change in the meaning of and definition of marriage, has that shaped the world so that it will never be the same? Uh, maybe a pandemic like the Black Plague or COVID-19 if you've heard of that one. Uh, sadly, it seems the world is often shaped and changed by disaster, perhaps more than good. Uh, but as Christians, we know that what has changed the world more than anything is the coming of Jesus into the world. His miraculous conception and birth into the world, his powerful ministry of word and deed. And we know ultimately his death and resurrection has changed the whole course of history. It's changed reality itself. But what about Jesus' ascension? which we saw last week in Acts 1, or his, his exaltation to the right hand of God in heaven. Or what about what we see in Acts 2 today, the coming of the Holy Spirit? Well, let's think about this uh, life-changing, history-changing event. But first, we're going to cast our mind back to Acts 1 last week. Uh, we're in week 2 now of our series in the book of Acts. So think back to just last week, to what we've seen so, so far Uh, Last week we saw Jesus raised from the dead, ascended into heaven, that wonderful, momentous event. Uh, But before he did that, he gave his disciples a commission. He gave them a message of salvation to take to all the nations. And he made one last promise to them. The promise that the Holy Spirit would come to them. And what we see today is that last big thing that Jesus promised and that Jesus came into the world to do the final thing that he came to bring about so of all that jesus did in his earthly ministry think about it for a moment acts 2 is kind of like the last piece of the puzzle he was born he lived he ministered he, he died to pay the penalty for sin he rose again he ascended into heaven all those moments were momentous but there's one last great thing jesus has to do on earth one more thing he promised to send his spirit to be in his people, to be his presence with them while he is not with them, while he reigns from heaven. So look at his promise, look at Acts chapter 1 verse 4, towards the end, this Jesus said is what you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then look at verse 8, this is is kind of like the heading, the whole run sheet for the book of Acts. Chapter 1, verse 8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And so he leaves them with this promise to wait. What a long few days that would have been. To wait for this final, momentous stage of Jesus' earthly ministry. It's kind of like his last act of his earthly ministry and the first act of his heavenly reign, to send his presence, God the Holy Spirit, to dwell in his people. 
So we're going to get into the exciting story. First of all, we'll see kind of what's, what happens on that day, the day the Spirit comes. So come along in your Bible. Uh, we have a whole chapter to look at. So what happens when the Spirit first comes? Or when does the Spirit come? Because look at verse 1. This happens on the day of Pentecost. So Pentecost, that was a Jewish festival that God had commanded his people to keep. And it's about 50 days now after Jesus was crucified. Uh, That's what the word Pentecost means. It's 50th. It's 50 days from the Passover festival, the previous Jewish festival in the calendar. So do you remember Jesus, he was crucified just after or at the Passover festival. Jesus' last supper was the Passover meal. That night he was betrayed. The next morning, Good Friday, he was crucified. On the third day, he rose again. And then for 40 days, Acts says, for 40 days, he appeared to the disciples and taught them. And then we have just a few days later, the 50th day, Pentecost. So the disciples, they they celebrated the day of Pentecost each year. But this one was very, very different. So look again at verse 1 and 2. All the believers were together. They kept on meeting. They kept on encouraging each other and praying. But this meeting was different, unparalleled. Because verse 2, suddenly a sound like a violent rushing wind came from heaven and it filled the whole house where they were staying. I, always, I just wonder what that would have sounded like, what that would have been like. I wonder if it's similar to like when you hear a plane go over your house and you kind of you hear a bit of a sound from the sky and you're like oh that's a plane and then it gets a bit louder and if it's flying low well, it gets really loud but then just imagine that the plane is in the room with you that's what i wonder if this would have been like uh, imagine the plane was in there the sound of rushing wind something like that is what they heard and experienced and the whole room fills with this sound and then verse three look there something like tongues or flames of fire appear and it's just so strange isn't it it comes and divides and rests on each one of them and it's all very weird but that's actually the point because in the scriptures this is a unique experience it's very rare that these kind of things happen and when they do it's always a symbol it's always a pointing to the fact that god himself is present the power of god the presence of god is there in the room This is a visit from God himself, from particularly God the Holy Spirit. He shows up in the room with power and majesty and glory. But the Spirit, he doesn't just come into the room. Look at verse 4. Then they, the disciples, were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different languages as the Spirit gave them ability for speech. Jesus has just promised And then he completes what he promised. He finishes his earthly work. He sends his spirit into his followers. And the immediate result here is they begin to speak in other languages, other tongues. And now there are many passages of scripture that we could go to, or a few actually, uh, that we could go to to think about what is the gift of speaking in tongues. Uh, And we could do that another time. But here in Acts, it's actually really clear what the gift in this circumstance was. It's the miraculous ability to speak in other human languages that you didn't know. You're just, you just start speaking it as if you did know it fluently, but you, d- you don't actually know that language. Because look at verse 5. It says there, There were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. That's important. Jews from all over the world were there for the festival of Pentecost. This is how God planned 
for his gospel to start spreading. He planned it for when all people, or Jews from around the world, were in the one place. Jerusalem's population would swell by thousands of Jews, and they all came from all over the world, and they all spoke different languages. And so by now, you have to picture it, the noise, the commotion in, in that room, and maybe it's spilled out into the street, has, has drawn a growing crowd. They're amazed and they're confused. Why? Well, because there's a bunch of Galileans, raggedy Galileans, speaking in all these languages of all the nations represented there. How could that happen, they asked. That, that's impossible. How could these Galileans know all these languages? Look at verse 8. How is it, they say, that each of us can hear in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those who live in Mesopotamia, in Judea and Cappadocia, and the list just keeps going, says then, we hear them, the disciples, these Galileans, speaking the magnificent acts of God in our own languages. See, that's what the gift of tongues here, in this instance, in this part of the Scriptures. It's the ability to speak supernaturally as the Spirit empowers them to speak languages they don't know. And so it's a genuine miracle, and everyone recognizes that it's a miracle. They're amazed, and some of them are a bit skeptical, thinking they're a bit drunk, they're just rambling. That's the only way they could explain it. It's, it's either drunkenness or a miracle. It's one or the other. But it's at this point now that Peter, the lead apostle, the one, remember, who's always first to speak up, he stands up and he makes everything clear. See, he gives the meaning of this miracle. He gives the first Christian sermon, the first of millions. I don't know what number of Christian sermon we're up to today, but it must be in the millions. This is the first one. So now you're hearing a sermon on a sermon. Did you realize that? Uh, You're getting double sermon now. Uh, but remember, don't, don't drift off because of that. This is our family history as Christians. It's so important that we pay attention to it and see the foundation, the beginning of God's church. So first the Spirit comes. Now the Spirit empowers Peter to preach, to be a witness, just as Jesus said. And Peter's sermon, like all good sermons, has three points. You can, mine doesn't have three points today, but anyway... So what is, first of all, the meaning of this Spirit-empowered miracle? Look at what Peter says in verse 14. He says, let me explain this to you. We're not drunk. Verse 16, this is his point. On the contrary, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. So Peter is saying, what you see and hear right now in this moment, it is the fulfillment of God's word of Old Testament prophecy from the book of Joel. So last year in our gospel teams, we looked at the book of Joel. I don't know if you remember, my gospel team actually really, really enjoyed it. Uh, But do you remember what the book of Joel was about? It's about locusts and the day of the Lord. So look at what Joel says in verse 17. In Joel, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all humanity, on all my people. Not, Not just some of them for some of the time. That's how I worked in the Old Testament. No, in the future... I will pour out my spirit on all who are my people. And then just look at the list of people there. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. I will even pour out my spirit on my male and female slaves in those days. And they will prophesy. Male and female, young and old, rich and poor, all of God's people will receive his spirit and will prophesy. Will speak his words, proclaim 
his magnificent acts. And that's what the disciples are doing. They're prophesying, declaring the acts of God in all these countless languages as the Spirit enables them. Because the Spirit has come. The Spirit has been poured out. But we skipped a little bit, did you notice? Because when does Joel say that these things happen? When does Joel say the Spirit would come? Look at verse 17 again. In the last days. So Peter is saying, Joel prophesied that the Spirit would come in the last days. God has poured out His Spirit. And so now is the beginning of the last days. Christians and and those who claim to be Christians, over the centuries they have obsessed over when the last days will come. What are the signs of the end times? Peter says it right here. With the coming of the Holy Spirit, the last days have begun. History was changed on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. The last days, the end times began. This right here is the beginning of the end. Not with the rise and fall of political powers. Not with a world war or a catastrophic disaster. No, the final act of Jesus' first coming was to pour out his spirit on all believers. What's the next thing to happen? His second coming. And so everything in between is the last days. So what does that mean? Well, look, it means, look down at verse 20. It means that the great and remarkable day of the Lord, that final day of God's judgment on the nations, is near. It could come now at any moment. These are the last days before that great and fearsome day. So Peter's sermon, the first Christian sermon, is actually a sermon about the coming judgment of God. And the only escape from that coming judgment, it's mentioned in verse 21, look there. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So Peter's saying the Spirit has come, the prophecy is fulfilled, the last days are here. Now is your chance. Now is the time to call on the name of the Lord and be saved from his wrath on that great day of the Lord. The last days have begun. The beginning of the end is here. The day of the Lord is around the corner. Time is running out. Call on the name of the Lord now. So that's his first point. The last days are here. But then his his second point is actually a bit of a surprise Because Joel, what was Joel saying? He was prophesying that those who call on the name of God, on Yahweh, they will be saved. But what does Peter do with the rest of his sermon? Who does he talk about? He talks about who this Lord is. And it's the Lord Jesus. So his second point is, this Jesus is Lord and Messiah. And he wants to show them how Jesus is this Lord, the one with all authority, the King, the Christ, the Messiah that was promised. Now, we can't get into all the meat of what he says, uh, but we're going to look at just a few bits together. Look at verse 22. So he reminds them, Jesus, this Nazarene Jesus, you you know him. He did miracles among you. you. You were the ones who used lawless people, the Romans, to execute him, to crucify him. And it was just 50 days ago, remember? But then verse 23, he says, You did this according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge. That verse there is quite amazing. Who is responsible for Jesus' death? 
The Romans? Yes. The Jews? Yes. Judas? Absolutely. But ultimately, who is responsible? God the Father. He knew, he determined, he planned, he delivered Jesus to be crucified. Why? Because of verse 24. So that God could raise him up, ending the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. This is how Jesus is Lord and Messiah. He is risen. Death can't hold him down. He is Lord and King over death. And that all of it was planned by God the Father. Jesus is Lord and and Messiah, first of all, because he is risen. And Peter, he drives this point home by pointing out some Old Testament scripture. He's speaking to the Jews who know these words. He says, this is exactly what David was talking about in Psalm 16. Look at verse 27. He says, uh, David says, You will not leave me in Hades, the place of the dead, or allow your Holy One to see decay in the tomb. Peter says, David is dead and buried. His tomb is just over there. His bones are still in there. Jesus is not dead and buried. His tomb is not with us anymore. David was prophesying that one day his descendant, the Messiah, would be raised. Not left in Hades, not remaining dead. His flesh would not experience decay. Ultimately, David was speaking about this moment and the resurrection of Jesus. So Peter, he brings it home in verse 32. God has resurrected this Jesus. We are all witnesses of this. So Jesus, he is Lord and Messiah because he is risen. And the apostles say, we have seen him. We testify. Jesus is Lord and Messiah because he's risen. But then another point is, Jesus is is Lord because he is reigning. So now Peter, he brings it full circle again and he explains the tongues miracle again. He says, this is happening because Jesus is Lord, because he reigns. Look at verse 33. Therefore, since he, Jesus, has been exalted to the right hand of God, he's not just risen, he's also ascended to heaven as king. Since he has been exalted to the right hand of God, the place of all authority, since he is there, well, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out the Spirit so that what you both see and hear is happening. The meaning of the miracle is the Spirit has come and it's because of Jesus. He is the Lord and Messiah. He is the one who has sent His Spirit in the last days. And so what's Peter's conclusion? Verse 36. This is kind of the big idea of the whole sermon, the take-home message. Verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. The evidence is the miracle. The evidence is the resurrection. He is reigning. He is risen. He is Lord. He is Messiah. Which brings us to the third point in Peter's sermon, which is the response that's called for. And you have to put yourself in the shoes of the Jews who were there that day. The Jews who just 50 days earlier had called for the crucifixion of Jesus, who falsely accused him and mocked him and and spat on him and hit him, who shouted crucify him. Those Jews have just heard from the mouth of Peter, the one you crucified is back from the dead. He is sitting at God's right hand in heaven. 
the last days are here, the great and terrible day of the Lord is near, and you are responsible for killing the Lord and Messiah. I told you, Peter's sermon was a sermon of God's coming judgment. That's how Peter finishes his sermon. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. What's, what's the logical response to that news if you were a Jew standing there on that day? Fear. Terror, shamed, disgrace, bewilderment. What have we done? What will happen to us? What will this risen and reigning Lord and Messiah do to us because of what we have done to him? Peter doesn't preach a lovey-dovey sermon on the day of Pentecost. He doesn't sugarcoat the reality of the depths of their sin. He tells it how it is. You crucified the Lord's Messiah. Judgment is coming. And they understood what he was saying. And so that's why their response is this in verse 37. When they heard this, they came under deep conviction. Literally, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what must we do? There's desperation in their voice, isn't there? What do we do? How could we begin to fix this? How could we begin to possibly be right with God, with this Jesus, after what we have done? But amongst all the talk of Jesus' lordship and that they are guilty, well, there was one sentence that Peter spoke One sentence that showed there is a way, that there is something that they can do, or rather something that God can do. It was back in Joel's words in verse 21. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. See, the Lord will show grace to those who call on his name. And so Peter says in response to them, verse 38... Look at these beautiful words of comfort. This is what it means to call on the name of the Lord. Verse 38, repent, Peter said to them. Repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent of what you have done. Repent of your sin, most of all your sin in killing Jesus and turn to God. Turn to the Lord Jesus Be baptized, be washed in his name, and then what will happen? What will you receive? Forgiveness of sin. Not wrath, not not anger, not punishment, not what you deserve. No, instead, forgiveness of all your sin and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Two immeasurably and precious and undeserved gifts. The release of all your debt against God for all your rebellion against him. All of it scrubbed out. And just just think again, who is Peter talking to? He's speaking to those who are responsible for killing Jesus. And he says, if you repent, you can be forgiven even of that. How can we think that God won't forgive us if on that day the offer of forgiveness went out to those who were responsible for killing Jesus? Forgiveness of sin, full and free. And the gift of the Holy Spirit. Again, just just mind-boggling. Just reflecting on that for a moment is amazing. God the Spirit dwelling in you, setting you apart as belonging to Jesus, guaranteeing the hope of eternal life, convicting you of God's Word and changing you to be more like the Lord Jesus every day. 
and giving you joy in your salvation. And I could just go on and on with all the blessings that the New Testament says we have because we have God's Spirit in these last days. And so look at verse 41. Those who accepted his message, who received the word, were baptized. And that day about 3,000 people were added to them. This is the mighty coming of God's Holy Spirit sent by Jesus, the Lord and Messiah, to bring forgiveness and salvation. Praise God. And then we get uh, in verse 42, just really briefly, the, the believers, they devoted themselves after that to the apostles' teaching, to, to knowing Jesus more. And they devoted themselves to encouraging each other in all the manner of ways listed in verse 42 to 47. And we'll see in future weeks how the Spirit continues to create the church, the community of people, and the way that they loved one another. Spirit came, sent by Jesus, and created the church. The church was born and continues to this day. It is a powerful demonstration of God at work through his Spirit. And so as we bring it together, as we kind of think about this story from a zoomed-out lens, let's think about the response that we should have to that wonderful day, the day of Pentecost, the coming of the Spirit. Uh, There's three things that we should do in response Number one, turn to Jesus as Lord. The first response is really to just do, why isn't this working? There we go. Uh, Is to do simply what Peter called on those first hearers to do. To respond the way that he says we should, to be cut to the heart by the message that Jesus is Lord and we are sinners. To call on the name of the Lord Jesus for salvation, to repent, to turn from our sin and to Jesus and to be baptized as that symbol of, of being washed clean by him and then receive by God's grace forgiveness of sin and the gift of God's Holy Spirit. See, all of us need to do this uh, in a big way when we first come to know Jesus. Like those first 3,000 who came to Jesus that day, they recognized their sin. They turned to Jesus with their whole heart and mind and life to serve him as Lord and Savior. It was a defining moment, the defining moment in their lives when they came from death to spiritual life. And maybe that's you. Maybe you haven't done that. And you need to do that today. Don't delay because we're in the last days. The time is short. Now is the day to call on the name of the Lord and be saved. But for those of us who have done that, who have turned to Jesus in this big way, well, we need to keep doing that day by day. But how easy is it to become apathetic about the gospel? So just ask yourself for a moment, does the message of Jesus as Lord and Messiah still cut me to the heart? Has it ever pierced my heart, that truth, that I am a sinner and Jesus is Lord and the day of the Lord is coming? Do we keep coming back to the fact that Jesus is our loving Lord? Yes, our thoughts and emotions can go up and down on this day by day. We can't always be passionate or impacted by everything all the time. But if I've never been cut to the heart by that news, that Jesus is risen and reigning and returning, have I really understood it? Have I really been convicted of it? Have I really believed and turned to the Lord for salvation? Whether or not for the first time or not, open your heart to that news again. That if you repent and believe, if you turn to the Lord who is risen and reigning, you will be saved you will be forgiven and have his spirit. Now is the time 
to do that. So number one, turn to the Jesus uh, as Lord. But number two, rejoice that the Spirit has come. This chapter marks that key moment in history in God's plan to save a people for himself and to dwell with him for all eternity for his glory and for their joy. And this marks a shift in that plan because the Spirit comes. No longer just on some people for some of the time like in the Old Testament, but on all who follow Jesus all of the time. It's permanent. And so rejoice that the world changed that day the day of Pentecost, and that you get to live in this age where Jesus has poured out his Spirit on all his people. Rejoice that that we have what God's people patiently waited for, the very presence of God in us, with us, to strengthen us, to comfort us, to convict us of sin and of God's love, to empower us, to speak his truth, to empower us to live for him. Again, I could go on and on about all the blessings that that God's Word says are ours because we have His Spirit. Rejoice that the Spirit has come. Number three, recognize that we're in the last days. The coming of the Spirit marks the beginning of the end. We're in the last days. The day of the Lord could be any day. Jesus' return could come like a thief in the night. So live like it. Have your mind fixed on that reality day by day. We're in the last days. The Spirit has come. The gospel is going out. That's what this time is for. History is all but wrapped up. Yes, we have to work. Yes, we have to pay the bills and do the housework. Yes, we have to love our family and raise our kids. Yes, we have to, and you can fill in the blank. There's no end of the busyness of life and things that take up our attention, but we have to do all these things in a way that honors Jesus first, yes, with integrity, with kindness, with all those characteristics. But we have to do all those things knowing that this world is not all there is. That we're in the last days and soon all the things of this world, our houses, our jobs, all those things, will pass away. Now is the time for the good news of Jesus to go out. Now is the time for the Spirit to be poured out on those who repent and believe. And that truly matters more than anything else we might invest in. And so I wonder if Acts 2 challenges you today, and I wonder if Acts will continue to challenge you to take your focus off the things of this world which are passing away and to put your focus on eternal realities, the cause of the gospel, using your time and energy and money to see Jesus' great commission fulfilled, to see more and more people repent as they come under the the sound of the gospel and then receive the spirit that Jesus is pouring out. What if we dedicated more time to those things than our other pursuits? Because Jesus, the only reason he hasn't come back is that. To have more people hear the good news, repent and believe and receive his spirit. So let's get on board or let's stay on board with what Jesus is doing in the world as he pours out his spirit on all people. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, what an, what an incredible gift your Holy Spirit in us is. We thank you and we can't thank you enough. And we can't appreciate this gift. We have all eternity to praise you for it. But we pray that you'd help us to recognize we're in the last days because your Spirit has come. And to see what this time is for. And seek to share the good news of Jesus and promote the good news of Jesus. Going out through all our missionaries and through our church 
into the world. We pray that you would bring your people to yourself and that you would pour out your spirit more and more so that on the last day we can stand with a multitude of people from every nation and tribe praising you in our own languages and giving you the glory you deserve for this great salvation. We thank you that Jesus is Lord. May he continue to reign and do his work in the world through the power of the spirit he pours out. We pray in his name. Amen.